Hi, and welcome to Beyond Madness from me, Christopher Paul Sabo. As a psychiatrist, I host conversations about issues emanating from psychiatry that impact society, as well as discuss societal issues that have potential implications for mental health and emotional well-being. My guests include thought leaders from both within the discipline of psychiatry and beyond. Beyond Madness is brought to you in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave. Inspiring communities, one pharmacy at a time. Aging. There is no escaping it. In my humble view, one has to ultimately embrace what is inevitable rather than fight what is a natural process. And I emphasize a natural process. And yet one wonders about this process as you observe it unfolding in the mirror, as you gaze at photos of a younger you from times gone by. It's been said that youth is wasted on the young, but what is young, a number or a state of mind? On today's episode, simply entitled Aging, we are joined by Dr. Laura Greenstein and Professor Carla Kotzer. Carla is Head of Geriatric Psychiatry at Vescopi's Hospital in Pretoria. She's also an adjunct professor in the Department of Psychiatry in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Pretoria. Laura is a geriatrician at Helen Joseph Hospital here in Johannesburg. And she's a lecturer in the Department of Medicine at the University of the Witwatersrand's Faculty of Health Sciences. So Carla and Laura, welcome to you both. And thank you so much for taking the time to join us. And it's, 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 it's a real privilege, actually, to have two subspecialists join me to cover the issue from both a physical and a psychiatric perspective, really bringing mind and body together, not one without the other. So maybe uh, I thought what I'd like to do is, is, is just start out by understanding your subspecialist disciplines, because I think for the audience, they'd like to know what is a subspecialist. So, Laura, I'm going to start with you. What is a, what is a geriatrician? Such a big word. It's basically a physician for older people. So anyone over the age of 65. Right. So that was a question I was going to ask. How do you define geriatric? So this is the question where I get into a lot of trouble and I offend many, many people every time I get asked. So chronologically at 65. Right. And w- where does that come from? I mean, is it, is it, is it an arbitrary number which is determined by age of retirement or, you know, what is the basis? So it's usually age of retirement. And then in certain countries, which are a bit more hard living, um, 60 is actually the cutoff. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that is, I, you know, they talk about 60 being the new 40. But in fact, what you're telling me is no, in certain countries, 60 is geriatric. That's scary. So that, 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 that is a little bit scary. So, okay. So you're a, basically a physician. College of Physicians, they do a diploma in geriatric medicine. I'm not sure if you did the diploma in geriatric medicine. No, so I did the certificate, which is a two-year after specializing. But they do the diploma for um, GPs who are interested in geriatric. Okay, so there's a certificate, which is Mm. a subspecialist. It's Mm. the same in College of Psychiatrists, actually. We have these certificates. Okay, so Carla… I was going to say that you're a geriatric psychiatrist, and I thought, no, no, hang on a sec. That didn't sound right. (laughs) As I know you, that's absolutely not the case. But I think, you know, in the UK, I think they speak about old age psychiatry, but locally we speak about geriatric psychiatry, and that's within the College of Psychiatrists. And both the College of Physicians and the College of Psychiatrists are in the Colleges of Medicine, which is basically an organization that sets curriculum 
and examines, and that leads to registration with the Health Professionals Council of South Africa. So, Carla, what, is a, 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 what does it mean to be a subspecialist in geriatric psychiatry? Well, I think it's pretty similar where there is this sort of arbitrary age cutoff and you deal with people above the age of 65. So we do tend to overlap quite a bit with the neuropsychiatry component right. because a lot of focus is on the cognitive disorders and so right. on. But we will then obviously also deal with the depression yes. and schizophrenia, bipolar disorders. In older people, right. where that will be a little bit different. Okay, so we're going yeah. to get to that when we drill down on the specific. But I think also yeah. potentially, um, just jumping ahead, you might mm-hmm. well deal with consultation liaison psychiatrists in casualty where an older person presents potentially with delirium, you yeah. know. So, but we'll we'll get there. So, I mean, I was a bit philosophical in my introduction, and 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 maybe it's my age, I suppose. And I, as I said, aging for me is an inevitable natural process. And, and, and whilst for some they accept it and they maybe even embrace it, I think for many people it's a battle. And so when I speak about accepting and embracing, I'm, I'm really talking about managing expectations actually and adapting accordingly. Not that life stops. On the contrary, it doesn't. It just evolves, but it certainly brings many challenges. I think getting older is not easy. So that's why I wanted to have this conversation. But before we get technical, I mean, your thoughts on my thoughts, I mean, because I'm just looking at aging, and maybe one thinks about it more as you yourself age as a doctor, and you start to think about your body, and how you are coping, and your mind in terms of how you're thinking. So I think there is a very philosophical element to this whole issue of aging. Lara, I don't know, you're a physician, but it doesn't mean you can't be philosophical. No, no, you're 100% right, but I mean, it's inevitable and it's going to happen. So you kind of have to get on with it. Otherwise, life stops while you complain and contemplate about how terrible everything is. Yes. So one has to really, I think, as I said, manage expectations. Carla, from your side? Yeah, I think it is a case of where all the people must be supported to create their own meaning at the end of their life, especially as you walk, you know, you move towards the extremes of age. You know, you get to your 90s and your yes. centenarians and so on. Right. Then you know that death is around the corner. And I think it is that natural process that you must come to accept and that you must not you know, be scared of it. You must yes. rather embrace it and, and create meaning in the time that you have left. Well, I think that's very important, this issue of meaning. And it's, and it's, and, and it's come through. I mean, we, in an earlier podcast, we were speaking about palliative medicine, mm-hmm. where you have, you know, uh, mm-hmm. an illness that is not curable. They're suffering. And how does one actually assist a person to make the most of their life and, 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 and to pass mm-hmm. with dignity and, and comfort? And one of the things that came through is that the best preparation for death is a full life mm-hmm. at the end of the day. So I think that, you know, in, in, in terms of aging, there's a very philosophical component because it's a reality for all of us. Mm-hmm. And I think it's not just, you know, I as a physician, as a psychiatrist, or you as a patient, we're all going to go through the same thing. And it's mm-hmm. kind of like a common experience. But what's really interesting for me, and so we've, we've defined geriatric, and I, I, I think I have a little bit of an issue with that. Mm-hmm. And maybe because a bit of a uh, – can I disclose that I'm in my 60s? <laughs> <laughs> bit of self-disclosure. So I'm thinking to myself, wow, you know, very soon I'm going to be a geriatric and I'm not sure that that's – I can't quite get my head around the fact that that term would necessarily apply to me. I mean, the other day I phoned the Automobile Association to renew my membership. And it wasn't the other day. It was about a year ago. And they said, oh, but you qualify for a pensioner's uh, – and I was like, what? Really? A pensioner? 
Hmm. And so one has these stereotypes of age, you know, in terms of what age means, what age looks like. And, 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 and it doesn't always accord with where you find yourself, yeah. you know. So I think philosophically it is quite difficult. But the one thing that I found really interesting, that aging has become a real focus of scientific interest. They were talking about between 2013 and 2023, there are over 300,000 scientific articles on aging, as many as in the previous century. Before 2013, so there's been an accelerated interest in 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 in, in aging and the the aging process. Maybe we're just living longer, so people are much more uh, aware of it. So I'm going to start with you, Laura, because now we're going to get a little bit technical, and I want to look at the physical medical aspects of aging. And I've got this sense, you know, often when we buy equipment, we know that there's built-in obsolescence. It's going to end, and we're going to have to replace it. And so to some extent, it's like the human body is is, is much the same. Um, there's a slowing down, a switching off. Maybe the slowing down is, is, is kind of preservation because you've still got distance to travel, or it's just an inevitable consequence of, 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 of being human. So, I mean, there are lots of phys- physiological changes that happen with aging. Right. But as one ages, you get these geriatric syndromes, which are these complex interplay of um, physical conditions, mental illnesses, um, lifelong stresses, right. um, addiction, et cetera, et cetera. And they all come together to um, cause these problems in people who are older than 65 that don't really happen in younger individuals. Okay. And that's where the complexity comes in. So, I mean, if we – if we talk about that don't really happen in, in, in younger individuals, what specifically would you be referring to? So things like dementia, right. falling, yes. polypharmacy, because um, as you yes. age, you collect diseases, so you're then on a whole lot of medication. Okay, so we're talking about the emerging comorbidities, mm. medical comorbidities mm. that arise as a consequence of aging. Not inevitably, I might Mm-mm. add. You know, but I think that one maybe sees them. Although these days, I mean, if we look at, for example, diabetes or hypertension or any of those kind of conditions, there's a lot associated with obesity, which is occurring at a young age. Yeah. So I wouldn't say that these conditions are age-specific necessarily. Mm-mm. But the um, presenting complaints and the way that people behave with these conditions when they're older are a little bit different yes. than when they're younger. Yes, and I think that what you've alluded to is very important, the issue of polypharmacy, because I really wanted to come to that because I think that's a major concern mm. uh, as one ages and you've got all these tablets that you're supposed to be taking to keep you healthy, mm. but the combination of these tablets can actually cause problems with drug-drug interactions, yeah. side effects from dosing because your metabolism is not what it used to be. So, I mean, that in itself is a, is a, is a major issue. But in terms of, of body systems, do they kind of switch off sequentially or do they all sort of – is it random? So it depends on the person. I mean, a very healthy person, eventually right at the end of life, they'll become frail where all the body systems sort of um, switch off. Yes. But in a in a sick person, maybe if they've got a weak heart, right. the cardiovascular system will be the major issue. Yes. Or the, or the central nervous system will be the bigger issue. Right. So it just depends on the person and their predisposing conditions. Okay, so how we age also has a lot to do with potentially how we live. Yes. Because I think that these sort of lifestyle issues contribute to how one ages. Not necessarily, but I think they do play a big part. Mm. I mean, what's your experience? No, huge. And I mean, if you don't take care of these lifestyle factors in middle age, you've 
bear the consequences when you're older. Yeah, and I think that my concern is that people, you know, there was always that sort of, uh, I don't know if it was a criticism or an observation, he or she has let go of themselves. And I think that what I've learned over time is that maintaining yourself, it's a, it's a constant. Mm. It's not a static. You don't just do it when you're young. It's a lifelong pursuit of trying to maintain yourself optimally whilst accepting that you're not going to get younger as you get older. Yes. But you can actually potentially forestall some of the difficulties of older age with how you treat yourself when you're younger. But the problem is you only realize that when you're older. So right. if you could go back, yes. it would be a lot easier. Well, so now you're talking about education, and, 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 and I think that that comes back to my earlier comment that um, youth is wasted on the young because I think you don't necessarily appreciate mm. what you're doing to your body or what the consequences are going to be until decades later mm. when you look back and say, wow, had I done this, had I not done that. And then, of course, you know, we get this whole issue of regret, which I think is not such a – Positive emotion, because at the end of the day, there's always something one can do. I mean, I mean, you don't have a nihilistic approach to this. No. So I think that's what's important. You work with older people. So what is your approach in terms of, of, of how you deal with older people? Because one of the questions I had was, what drew you to become a geriatrician? Well, the complexity is really interesting. I mean, it's not a simple you know, there's one problem, there's one solution. Right. I like the fact that you can do little things and make massive differences in people's lives. I think that's very important because also little things can have profound consequences. Yeah. And certainly I think as one gets older, it doesn't take much to upset the entire system. And there's a cascade of effects. I don't know if you, if you see that, like mm. small changes yeah. in one's electrolytes or anything like that can have a profound impact. I mean, it's... The simplest thing, like a little bit of fluid or stopping one medication, yes. can make somebody go from being functionally incapacitated to living a, a relatively functionally normal life. So tell me something. How much do you know about telomeres? Well, I know that they shorten as you get older. <laughs> <laughs> and if I could lengthen them, I'd be a multi-billionaire. <laughs> no, exactly. So for me, this is this is something that's that's really interested me as I was sort of looking into this whole process of aging and the relationship between telomere length, which I found at the end of chromosomes, it's, 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 it's protein, and the relationship between lifestyle and how it impacts upon your telomere. So what we're talking about may sound, you know, and, and one doesn't want to be preachy about lifestyle. Oh, you should exercise more. Oh, you should eat more carefully. You should get enough sleep, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The truth of the matter is there's hard data that kind of links mm -hmm. certain lifestyles with telomere length, which is not just about how much you're, you know, how much longer you're going to live. Also has influence, for example, on, on, on things like cancer mm. and other chronic diseases. I don't know what your thoughts are on, on, on that. No, I agree with you, but I mean, I suppose it comes back to education again. Yes. And it should be a lifestyle, a long lifestyle process that starts in youth, actually. So that you can continue this lifestyle that you're used to. Right. It's very difficult making these massive changes. Suddenly one day you're told, oh, you must exercise. Yes. You must eat the Mediterranean diet. Yes. You must stop drinking alcohol. Right. Stop smoking. Yes. No, no. I mean, I think your point's well taken is that 
one is expecting dramatic change at a time when you are maybe least equipped to make that change. Mm. And the fact of the matter is there's a lifestyle that's been consolidated mm. over decades. Now you're compromised. Now you have to start thinking, geez, what do I need to do? But the fact of the matter is there are things you can do. Mm. And I do think that all of these efforts and all of these activities are not or these behavioral changes are not in vain Mm-mm. because they will contribute to a better quality of life. No, absolutely. I mean, for me, successful aging is being able to live functionally independently for as long as possible. Right. The the actual length of life is irrelevant really. Yes, I think that's very important because we seem to maybe lose sight of what exactly you've said, which is the quality. And we're getting into the quantity, mm. how long we live versus how well we live. Mm. And I think, you know, obviously you can live well, but you can be struck down. And so, you know, that can happen, be it a motor vehicle accident or a sudden unexpected illness. But the truth of the matter is, yes, it's about quality. And I'm not sure that that's necessarily the focus. It's always about how much longer mm. and longevity. And I think that um, the way in which we live our lives is, is, is obviously very influential. I was actually, you know, the, they were looking at the uh, fact that if you were to smoke a pack of cigarettes for 40 years, you're going to knock about eight years off your life. And if you're obese, you're going to knock about nine years off your life. So they've actually started to put a quantity to your longevity mm. in terms of your lifestyle and in terms of your habits. So do you find yourself as a geriatrician having to address these kinds of issues with your patients? With the patients and with their families. Right. So elaborate a little bit on that because I think that, that that's, it's, it's, it's kind of – and again, I think one of the difficulties for me is always I'm not preaching and I'm not trying to uh, force you. I'm suggesting that these are things that you can do which might make a difference. So I mean – Obviously, there are certain things like stopping smoking, right. which is really, really important. Yes. But if somebody has been drinking a glass of wine with their dinner every night for the last 50 years, you're not going to stop it. So one glass of wine rather than a bottle. Yes. I mean, you can't be on a really, really strict diet every single day forever. So obviously, you would suggest a healthy lifestyle. But I mean, if there's a birthday party or some family function, enjoy yourself. Yes. You know, in mod- things, everything in moderation. Well, you're coming back to one of my favorite words, balance. Yeah. Because I think that that is something which, which, which is quite obvious and yet so difficult to, to achieve. And I, I, you know, when you're sitting on the other side of the desk as a, as, as the practitioner, the medical practitioner and, and, and the other side of the desk is, is, is the patient, one has to be so careful in how you, um, convey the message mm. of what is, of what is needed. Because I think that patients sometimes really struggle with some of these changes. No, very much so. It's, it's huge. It's what they've been doing every day forever. Right. And now you come along. Yeah, like you know it all. <laughs> yeah. And you say, no, you've got to stop this and you've got to stop that. And, you... and I think that's always very difficult. You know, you've got to or you must. And it's all involving stopping mm. what you've done for decades. And now here's this person who's probably 20 or 30 years younger than you telling you what to do. I think there's also that issue because mm. how do you deal with the age differential between yourself and your patients? How do they look at you? 
Well, some of them still ask me, are you even old enough to be a doctor? <laughs> <laughs> yes, no, exactly. You know, and I think that is one of the difficulties that um, I hadn't kind of anticipated talking about. But, I, I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about – and it's the same in psychiatry and certainly in psychology where, you know, you, you, you qualify in your late 20s, early 30s, and suddenly you're dealing with much older adults – they're kind of looking at you and thinking, this is a pipsqueak on the other side. What do they know? And yet you're competent as a professional. So how do you deal with that? Oh, you know, I make a joke of it. Yes. So you own it. Yeah. I mean, what must I do? I'm, I am younger than them. That's right. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> I think eventually, though, it, 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 it's, it's about how you approach people, I think, and how you assist them, which builds trust, mm. so that eventually they just come to see you as that person who's a caregiver who ultimately provides them with a better quality of life if they just listen to you and work with you as opposed – and and I think the one thing in psychiatry, and I'll, obviously I have, I'm not ignoring Carla, but I'm going to get to her specifically. I think it's about the relationship that you form mm. with the patient that really is very powerful where you actually work collaboratively. So mm. I don't know how that works with you. Oh, there's always a negotiation. Yes. We'll do a little bit of this. We'll do a little bit of that. What can you manage? Right. How can your family help? Yes. And I like the idea of the family because I'm, it's, it's, it's a more philosophical, well, it's a philosophical, maybe even an ethical issue. The, the involvement of families with the older person, mm. but we'll come to that. So in terms of the sort of spectrum of conditions that you see, are they age specific or is it really just same conditions in an older age group? So are there conditions that, kind of emerge with age or are they simply just the conditions that continue through with age from a younger age? So they both. Things right. like falling and instability is more um, prevalent in the older population. Right. I mean, obviously your dementias are also more prevalent yes. in the older population. Right. Frailty, yes. which comes with aging. Right. And then your multimorbidity because you've got collect all these diseases and your polypharmacy and everything yes. is more prevalent with aging. But I mean, it can happen in younger people. Right. So this issue of, 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 of frailty, because I came across, it's a small literature, but it, 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 it certainly is, is one that's worth bearing in mind. Do you ever recommend exercise or yoga, for example, because there's been a lot more written more recently about this whole issue of frailty, mm. unsteadiness, falling, loss of power and strength, and recommending yoga as a potential. So I'm, I'm specifically honing in on yoga because you can do it in a chair. Yeah, You don't have to be actually in a class doing it. So your, your thoughts on, on, on how you address that frailty? Well, I mean, falling is one of the most deadly consequences that can happen to an older person. Right. So, I mean, you can break your hip, have other physical um, consequences, etc. So exercising is really, really important. Balance and um, st more balance, really. Yes, yes. Because you want to strengthen those core muscles. So any yes. exercise that strengthens the core, so Pilates, yoga, Tai Chi, mm. any of those exercises, obviously within what the limit of what the person can do. Right. So if somebody's got really bad arthritis in their hips and they can't really move, chair exercises are excellent. Right. So I think it's very much person-specific. Mm. And I think although we're mentioning these various disciplines, Tai Chi, yoga, etc., it's not to say that you have to join a class. Mm -mm. You can undertake certain of the activities associated with those disciplines, which you can do at home alone. I think motivation is a strong issue here. How do you motivate people to actually do things that they've maybe never done? 
See, that's why I like classes because you get the social interaction. Yes. And then you see other people doing it and then yes. you want to participate more. Yes. So I think the issue of, of, of social interaction is very important. Mm. Cause I think one of the things with, with age and we're going to come to that is the issue of isolation and loneliness mm. and feeling like you're being left behind mm. and almost discarded. So the social activity side of things I think is very important and the activity, because the one thing I've noticed when a person stops walking, then the deterioration for me seems to be very rapid. Mm. And I'm always very adamant, keep walking, even if it's with a walker, mm. but you must maintain your strength. And so the one thing I've, I've kind of understood is that as you age, as you get older, strength training is actually very important mm. to maintain, as you say, that core strength. Mm. I don't think it's necessarily communicated no. or, 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 or pushed in that sense, but I think it's a fundamental. Mm. No, I think so too. I mean, I only really learned about it when I started doing geriatrics. I didn't even consider it beforehand. Right. And it just seems like such common knowledge and such common sense. Yes. Yet nobody ever tells you. No, exactly. And I think that this is, you know, we're looking, you know, we're living in an age of ultra modern medicine and very sophisticated interventions from pharmacological to, to, to diagnostic. And yet there are some fundamentals, Mm -hmm. you know, just sitting in your chair and saying, right, stand up, sit down, stand up, sit down, do that 10 times, do it in the morning, do it at lunchtime, do it in the evening. And basic exercises that you can do from a seated position just to maintain your upper body strength and your core. Very important in terms of health and addressing these issues of balance and frailty Mm. because your stabilizing muscles are very important. Yeah. And if you fall, at least then you can get up. Absolutely. And hopefully not fracture. Yeah. And lie, I mean, how many older people does one hear of who fall, they're alone, and they lie on the floor for goodness knows how mm. long before somebody kind of thinks, why aren't they answering the phone or they're not answering the door and they've been lying mm. on the floor injured? I mean, that for me is, 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 is really sad. Tragic, really awful. You know, and as you say, that frailty and the fractures mm. with the knock-on effects. So what I'm understanding is that they're not really sort of age-specific conditions in terms of medical ailments. They can occur across the lifespan, but there are vulnerabilities Mm. that become more apparent. Yes, no, that's exactly it. Right. So I think that with the physical vulnerability in Mm. terms of the frailty and the balance issues. And so one is really sending a message that for anybody of whatever age, this is something you need to be doing already when you're younger, actually. Although when you're younger, you don't have these issues, so you don't think about it. And then when you're older and you do have these issues, difficult to get going Mm. and to start from scratch and say, oh, okay, that's what I need to do. So I think the motivation for, 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 for behavioral change is, is often not there. And that's a real problem. Yeah. So this issue of polypharmacy, we've mentioned polypharmacy and, and just to be clear, what we're really talking about is lots of different medication for different conditions. So how do you manage that in the older person? Because we're also dealing, and and, and we're going to come to that in in terms of the psychological and cognitive aspects, but you're dealing with somebody whose memory may not be quite as it should be, their cognitive ability, and they've got all these medications they have to be taking. How do you manage that? Well, often they're um, duplicate medications. People go to many different doctors. Things are just added. So we look at all the medicines. We see what's absolutely essential and what you can't stop. Right. And obviously those ones you have to keep. Yes. And then you look at the ones that you really don't need. Yes. And those ones you stop. Right. And then you look at the ones where you have to negotiate. 
right. whether you can or can't stop them. Okay. <laughs> so, so, I mean, you're obviously also looking at what we call drug-drug interactions because those themselves can cause problems in mm. an older person because I think there's a – again, we come back to the issue of vulnerability. So there's a vulnerability to side effects in these interactions. And they drug disease interactions as well. So certain right. medicines make certain conditions worse. Right. Certain so, drugs make nutrient deficiencies worse. Right. So as a geriatrician, you're kind of looking at the whole mm. picture. And I think that, you know, what concerns me with medicine is that we often work in siloed approaches. Yeah. And so this one looks at that, this one looks at that, but nobody's looking at everything. So often it's the psychiatrist who eventually is the one who's looking at everything because that's the, the patients come to you. So you're almost like the patient's friend for all the other conditions. But as a geriatrician, you have that sort of sky view where you're looking down and say, right, I see what's going on here. And then do you kind of manage everything? So we use this approach called the comprehensive geriatric assessment, which takes into consideration your physical, your cognitive, your environment, your social, your functional um, capacity. And then we manage what we can and we refer on with what we need help for. Right. So sometimes you need a geriatric or a neuropsychiatrist. Right. Sometimes you need the physio, the OT, the right. allied health professionals, a cardiologist, a pulmonologist. But at least you can pick who um, – would be the best fit for that particular patient. And then do you manage? Because, mm. you know, in psychiatry, we often talk about a case manager, like yes. the, the person who coordinates everything and who's like got the view of it all yes. and can integrate it. Because otherwise it's a disaster. Okay. Then everybody's well, doing their own thing. Nobody yes. knows what's happening. Yes. It's like the conductor of an orchestra. No, but that's exactly <laughs> right. And, and, and I think it's very important that folk get a sense of that mm. and that this person does exist who at a certain point in your life can take an overview of mm. everything and manage everything as it, as it should be. Sometimes not always to the happiness of your other colleagues because you're kind of stepping into their turf, but you're trying to manage it in the best interest of the patient. And I think that's what's important. So how do you differentiate between what's normal and what's illness as you get older? If it starts impacting on your function and you can't carry out your day-to-day -day activities, yes. then it's not normal. Right. So that's what we're looking at. We're looking at functionality. Mm. Now, the one thing you did mention was the family, and I think that's very important because it's important to have support structures, other people who are aware of what is going on and who can assist, support, and motivate the patient. Mm. So you work quite closely with families? Yes. So I actually like the families to be in the consultation with the patient. Excellent. Just so that they know what's going on and that everyone's on the same page. Yes. That makes a lot of sense mm. practically, mm. and that really speaks to me as a psychiatrist. Certainly I come from an adolescent psychiatry background, and so the families are always mm. very important because, as I say, when you leave the consulting room, I don't go with you. Yeah. So somebody has to know what's going mm. on. And it's not about intruding into the privacy of the individual. It's about making sure that everybody's adequately informed and knows how to support. Mm. So – on that note, because that's kind of like getting into the psychosocial aspects, I'm going to shift focus to <laughs> to Carla. And obviously, you know, one of the, the big issues, I think, as one ages, and if one looks at the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, version 5, and text revision has been published, this issue of cognitive decline and this idea of I'm losing my mind. And losing my mind doesn't necessarily mean I'm going crazy. It just means... I'm not what I was in terms of my cognitive ability. And I think that the issue of cognitive decline is a, is a big concern and certainly in terms of DSM, mild versus major neurocognitive disorder. So your thoughts? Yeah, I think that is um, 
the way the functional impairment comes in, basically. So that will be the distinguishing thing between the mild and the major. Right. So in, in mild, I think it's really just a subjective experience where people complain that they feel they're becoming a little bit more forgetful, but right. they will still be able to do their activities of daily living. Yes. And they will still be coping with that. Right. But I think it is still uh, quite a concerning thing for anybody who presents with those types of complaints because, you know, then you start worrying. Mm. Is this now going to develop into a dementia or not? Right. And I think that is then where you can maybe get them to implement some of these lifestyle things, which right. should ideally be there from childhood because right. it is actually a lifestyle illness yes. or a, a life cycle. You know, yes. It really develops from a young age. And if right. you look at all the modifiable risk factors, it's things that you can really do. You know, childhood education is the one. Yes. Um, isolation is the other one. Yes. It's, it's not things that you – can start implementing right at the end. It should be through the life cycle. I think that's very important because, you know, often when people present with a problem, they expect a solution. Mm -hmm. But the fact of the matter is the problem didn't start today. Mm -hmm. It didn't start when you acknowledged it. Mm -hmm. It's been building mm -hmm. and probably there in sort of minor form, maybe building up to when you actually present. So this issue of mild cognitive impairment, you know, where's the, where's the line? Because obviously, you know, there is, there is, as you get older, you're, you're cognitively a bit more rigid, maybe, and you are a little bit forgetful. Where do we cross over into disorder as in mild? I think when we get to major, I think that's much, in a way, it's maybe easier to, 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 to kind of designate. But this idea of a mild cognitive impairment, firstly, what is it and what does it mean? Because I think those are the two questions for me. You know, how do we how do we decide? Okay, you've got a diagnosable condition now. So, yeah. yeah. Well, it is a very very contentious topic actually, because in terms of what does it mean in the end, it's really difficult even for us as doctors. You do have people who feel that you should treat, but if you look at guidelines and everything. There's actually no treatment for a mild cognitive impairment yes. because we can't predict who will go on to develop a dementia. Right. So the thing is then in those cases, it's really a case of support, following right. up very closely, you know, getting them to implement all the lifestyle things that can help slow the cognitive decline right. and to treat anything that might be comorbid, you know, because right. especially in those cases, there might be a lot of things like depression or anxiety right. okay. because you are uncomfortable you you can you know you're realizing that you're not functioning like you functioned before right. so that can be quite distressing and i think that is then where instead of just adding to the burden of the polypharmacy and yes. bombarding them with medicines yes. is to rather to try the lifestyle things and and you know like i said the support and the family interventions right. so i think that's very important because at, at, at the end of the day we're looking at horses for courses mm -hmm. so we're looking at okay the person presents they have potentially mild neurocognitive issues. We don't know if it's going to progress to anything major, but we're going to look at the person holistically. And we're going to say, right, this is not necessarily something that has risen to the level of a pharmacological intervention, but there are some practical behavioral changes that are maybe going to assist you to prevent this progressing and maybe even improve where you are. Because at the end of the day, it's very difficult to know exactly. But I think what's very important is context. Mm. You know, when a person, maybe they've suffered a loss. Mm. Maybe they have suffered a setback. And so on that basis, 
cognitively, emotionally, things are not going so well. And those issues have not been addressed. I mean, to what extent do you sometimes feel that, you know, if, if you don't get into the context, you start to medicalize what is actually a fairly understandable and potentially, I'm going to put the word normal in inverted commas. People can't see me, but I'm doing the air commas. Um, you know, and, and, and what it really requires is a thoughtful discussion around and a, and a reassurance, and it becomes more psychotherapeutic than anything else. You know, I definitely agree with that because I think we do tend to over-medicalize things. So obviously in those cases, you have to check that the hypertension is controlled, right. you know, that their diabetes is treated, all those other things that we know are risk factors. Yes. But I think, you know, we must just realize that a normal part of aging is that our, our Cognitive processes change. So you might not be as quick as you were when you were younger, but you have the benefit of all the wisdom that you gained over the ages, you know. So, so you have a lot of information that you can integrate and that you can fall back on where you don't have to learn so much of the new things as you would when you are younger. So I think there's a lot of strengths in, in our older populations that we're not tapping into. I would agree with that. I mean, that's my personal view. But I was looking at some American data because, you know, a lot of the data comes out of America. And measurable cognitive impairment, they're saying up to one-fifth of the population by age 65 and up to 40% by the age of 85. So this group of mild cognitive impairment could actually affect quite a lot of people. And so the question for me becomes – whether it's a diagnosable condition in its own right or whether it is simply part of the normal aging process that doesn't require anything more than what we're talking about. Well, I think that is where the difficulty comes in because if you look at all the clinical trials that have done for things like Alzheimer's disease, the earlier you treat, the better. So people want to start treating when there's only those mild impairments. Mm -hmm. But the problem is then you're going to end up treating people who will maybe not develop uh, dementia in the end. So I think as our diagnostic um, abilities are being refined, I think yes. with Alzheimer's specifically, there's a lot of developments in terms of the antibodies and um, functional scans and right. even LPs and those types of things, yes. where I think it will be easier to diagnose and then treat early on. But I think you should still be very cognizant of the other conditions that can influence your memory and your attention and so on, and not over-treat. Because you mentioned earlier sleep, you know. Yes. If you have not been sleeping well, you're not going to be as sharp and cognitively yes. there as you would be when you in a pace, pace where you, you know, you've had a good sleep, you're, um, you're not stressed about a lot of yes. things. So I think those are all things. We have to be holistic. We have to take everything into consideration. And I think we must make sure that if we do then start treating, that we're treating a diagnosable thing where I think with the mild cognitive impairments, we're not there yet. Yes. And I think for me, that's, 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 that's one of the tricky ones. Yeah. But I, but I see what you're saying because mild can progress to major. And if there is anything one can do to prevent that progression, then that's critical. But our ability to accurately predict is a problem. And so what I'm hearing you say is that, yes, but as we improve diagnostically, we'll be better able to determine who in that group could potentially progress. And then the question becomes, what 
interventions are really effective in preventing progression. Now, obviously, if there are medical comorbidities, suboptimal kidney function or cardiovascular, you know, there are things or endocrine like diabetes, we can intervene and optimize. But sometimes it's beyond that. And there are other processes which are kind of unfolding. And my question then becomes, what are we actually able to do besides support in terms of intervention that we can say, I'm going to put you on this medication and it will prevent the progression? I think the best medicines we have available, unfortunately, is not anything that's specifically for the dementias. It's really the cardiovascular things, you know, right. the diabetes, the hypertension. Right. So, so we do have the, the acetylcholine esterase inhibitors, and yes. there's been a few other medications that's been approved by the FDA but, you know, some controversial um, situations around their approval, yes. it was expedited and so on. And I think the evidence that any of those medications really stop progression is not good. So we don't have a medication that is really not, you know, going to prevent you from developing dementia. It's more the, the vascular risk factors yes. and the other lifestyle things that we mentioned already, maintaining your physical activity, yeah. social interaction, yes. um, learning new things. Those things can really make a very big difference in yes. delaying the progression. So I think beyond the pharmacology, there's the behavioral. And I think that's very important because I, I, I think we live in an age where if you make a diagnosis, there's an expectation of a treatment and an expectation of a very specific positive outcome. Mm -hmm. And I think that one has to be very cautious without being nihilistic. I think it's about being realistic, mm -hmm. actually, in terms of what are the limits of our ability. Mm -hmm. And obviously, the, the, the progression is very difficult mm -hmm. because as a, as a, as a, as a sufferer, you're kind of conscious in real time that your faculties are failing. Your family around you is seeing these things happen. And I think it's, 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 it's very, I'm going to use the word traumatic. I mean, we use the word trauma quite loosely these days, but I think it is traumatic and it's very troubling to mm -hmm. see this, this happening. And I think that's where the psychiatrist and an empathic geriatrician come into the equation. And that's mm -hmm. where I see the two disciplines kind of merging because I think it's very difficult to separate mind and body. I think everything sort of comes mm -hmm. together. So, you know, your, your role as a, as a, as a geriatric psychiatrist in terms of that kind of intervention, support, behavioral change. Yeah, I think that is, um, you know, where the geriatrician will really pay a lot of focus to the, the physical ailments as well. We will ask their advice and we will really focus more on the emotional health and the behavioral problems and so on. So that is where we will then sometimes use medication if it is really indicated, especially if a patient's behavior has deteriorated or is, has become so problematic that they are putting themselves in danger. Yes. But unfortunately, you know, they we usually, um, we have to resort to off-label use of medications. Meaning? Um, where it is medications that's not really registered specifically for behavioral problems in dementia. Right. But we use it there because of our experience, you know, where we use it, for example, in patients with psychotic disorders. Right. And, and we know that it can help for certain things. But then it's associated with significant risks, you know. So yes. we have to be very careful and we have to try everything in terms of manipulating the environment right. before we resort to those types. So the way I look at geriatric psychiatry, we've got existing psychiatric illness that is across the lifespan that has to continue to be managed. And then we have emerging conditions which are predominantly, I would say, neurocognitive, mm -hmm. cognitive 
decline that is taking place? Would that be? Well, you do also get quite a big um, po- portion of um, older patients who develop late life depression and right. late onset anxiety okay. and those types of things. So it's very, yeah. it's rarer to see um, things like schizophrenia and right. bipolar disorder later right. on, although there is a subgroup, right. you know, where they, but it's a little bit of a different focus. But, but the late onset depression is quite concerning because then those patients are at high risk right. of developing a dementia as well. Right. But sometimes it is really just a, a depression related to that existential issues and you know the the lack of meaning that you might be experiencing if you if you're not faced with the end of life type of questions and and you have not really sorted it out and you yes. don't have support and all those types of things so one of the issues of course in depression are memory issues concentration issues so there's often mm-hmm. an overlap mm-hmm. between what could like look like dementia but is in fact depression and that is obviously where a very good history comes in and also supporting Collateral information from, from, from family members. So this is something that you sometimes obviously encounter in clinical practice where somebody presents, they look like they might be dementing, but in fact, they're depressed. Yes, it's sometimes impossible to really distinguish the two. And then the only way that you can see is if you treat the depression. And right. if the depression starts to lift, then you have to sort of see what remains in terms of the cognitive symptoms and impairments. So there is a relationship between depression and dementia, but it mm-hmm. may be that somebody's depressed with cognitive difficulties, you treat the depression, and then things improve. Mm-hmm. So I think, you know, we were always taught there's the reversible and the irreversible. So one is always looking for reversible causes of uh, dementia. So managing the medical aspects and also looking at whether there are any emerging psychiatric conditions that under with treatment will improve. Obviously, prescribing medication in the elderly, which is I think the same for a geriatrician as for a geriatric psychiatrist, that's a very uh, sensitive issue because you are introducing these medications into a somewhat different physical system. Yeah, no, so you really have to be careful. So you always have to be aware of the other medications and also including over-the-counter treatment because sometimes yes. the older people like their, their pain tablets with some codeine in it and things like that. So you really have to consider all those types of things. So we have a similar approach where we will ask them to bring everything that they've been getting from all the different practitioners that they've seen and then we'll have to sort of you know, make sure that some of those medications can't cause the depression because that can also be the case. Try and rationalize the treatment. And then luckily we do have some antidepressants and so on. That's fairly safe, but we'll start at a lower dose, titrate it up slower than you would in a younger, healthy, fit patient. So I think a question for you as a a subspecialist, do do you think that – trainees have enough exposure to geriatric psychiatry so that as general psychiatrists they are because you can't take every older person to a subspecialist either geriatrician or to a a geriatric psychiatrist specializing in, in geriatrics do you think there's adequate training and understanding I don't think so, no, because in, in South Africa, we only have the one training unit at Stickland Hospital where they train people in the subspecialty. Right. So, and I think as part of our undergrad medical curriculum, there's a very, very small portion that's spent on specifically the older people. Yes. So I, I've realized even with our registrars where they, they sometimes have the impression that dementia is sort of 
inevitable. Everybody will get dementia. Right. So I think there is definitely a very big gap and a big room for improvement, and not just for our medical students, but for our population in general of how to maintain your brain and your physical health as you get older. Because I don't think we have a very strong fo- focus on preventative measures. Yeah, no, I think that's very important because the truth of the matter is we have an aging population. We're living longer, not necessarily healthier, but we're living <laughs> longer. And the fact of the matter is what are we doing about prevention in terms of leading lifestyles that are more conducive to healthier aging? And I think that that for me is really what's very important is, 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 is this concept of, of, of healthier aging. At the end of the day, I don't think it's rocket science, actually. I think we have a lot of data in terms of obesity, in terms of smoking, in terms of substances, uh, in terms of toxin exposure and, and, and certain mm-hmm. professions, all, I might add, impacting on the telomere length. Mm-hmm. There is the data that's actually showing that there's a relationship between these things. So do you think – now, we're going to get a little bit more philosophical here because I think we've dealt with some of the practical sort of technical issues from either side – but this whole issue of, of, of the aged kind of being sidelined and almost – denigration is a strong word, but there's a kind of a glorification of youth. It's all about now and the older folk are just kind of relics. Laura? No, I agree with you. And um, people don't put enough value on the older population. Yes. I mean we can learn so much from them and they're individuals in their own right of and course. they can make their own decisions, but often you ignore the older person. And speak about them to their family. Don't let them, you know, be part of the conversation. Right. Make their own decisions. Yes. No, I think that that's very important. It's about respect mm. at the end of the day for them as individuals. Mm. And I shouldn't even be using the word them. They're people. Mm. They are part of our community. They are part of our family. I think one of the things that, that certainly when I was doing adolescent psychiatry um, – at Tara Hospital, I was very conscious of the the, the issue of age-constrained social interaction, where we were not getting the uh, range of ages in a given social situation. It's like the younger folk went over there and the adults of a certain age went there and the older folk were over there. And for me, that was very much a loss mm-hmm. of the dissemination of exactly what you're talking about, knowledge, wisdom, information, and including Older people, not on the basis of achshem, but because they are people to be respected in their own right. And I think that age-constrained social interaction has been a big issue for me. I don't know what you think, Carla. Yeah, I think we're sitting with a very big problem of ageism in general. So I think it's not just where people (laughs) think that you're not even a qualified doctor, but specifically for our older population. If you look at um, funding in our country, you know, the old people are always very last in line for their health care allocations and so on. We don't have key facilities, those types of things. And I think it is because we do not value them. And I think we expect people to always be able to to give back instead of accepting that at a certain stage, maybe they won't be able to do all the things that they used to, but they still have value. And we can still do a lot to maintain their quality of life, and then also to still learn from them. So even if they might have impairments in some areas, there might be other areas where they can still add value. Well, I think that's very important. And one of the issues for me was the loss of three-generation families. 
And, you know, often I would travel internationally. And, and interestingly enough, in Australia, of all places, I was very conscious of three-generation families. There was the granny, there were the parents, and there were the grandchildren. It was always very gratifying for me. And certainly when I went back to, to, to Hungary and I was in the village, there was not just the granny, the parents, and the, there was the great-grandmother. So there were four generations together, and, and, and I've got a, a photograph of that, and I thought, wow. How wonderful. And everybody is respected for who they are in their own right. And there's this integration. And I think it's so important. And maybe it's a cultural thing. I think, for example, Northern European versus Southern European, there's a very big difference. Apparently in Denmark, 80% of the population say old age should be taken for care, care of by the government, whereas in Greek society, that's about 10%. 90% say, no, 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 this is a family issue. And I think the issue of families is so important and 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 making sure that because i always say to 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 people how your children see you treat your parents is how they will one day treat you so i think you show the respect to your parents you get the respect from your kids and i think it's something that is needing to be understood culturally and at a societal level because the real concern for me is that older folk get abandoned and that issue of social isolation. And I think it has a profound effect on them psychologically, Carla. Yes, no, definitely. And I think if you look at all the longevity type of studies, there's obviously a lot of other risk um, um, factors, you know, like diet and health, healthy lifestyle, yes. and so on, that plays a role. But one of the things that you see in populations like the Okinawan people, for example, right, in Japan. is they really, yes, they value their older people. They really have a lot of respect for them. They take care of them. And the older people are encouraged to participate and to really contribute to society. And, yes. you know, they keep on working until a later age and, and do things that add meaning in their life. And that really makes a big difference. So this begs the whole question because we're running out of time, but the things I wanted to talk about, which is retirement. Mm -hmm. Does one ever retire? And also looking at the older doctor because mm -hmm. we're all getting older. At what point are we going to be subjected to competency assessments to see whether we're capable actually of rendering a service? But, you know, I was looking again at American data. And currently, well, 2020, a third of American doctors are over 60. And this is – up from a quarter in 2010. So we've got an aging doctor population as well. So what do we do? Do we just push them to one side and say, sorry, you can't practice anymore and where are the services? So my producer gave me the, gave me the two fingers. Wow. <laughs> just to designate two minutes. So we're coming to the end and you know, there are so many philosophical issues. You know, this, this whole issue of that Japanese uh, professor of economics at Yale University saying mass suicide was the way to go. So I'm not going to go there. Yusuke Narita, if you want to look for him and looking at Japanese society specifically. And, you know, the whole issue of the fear of aging and sort of the Peter Pan syndrome and plastic surgery, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a whole bunch of things that I could have discussed. But you put the word ageism into the podcast, which I think is very important because I was going to bring it up. So I'm glad you did. So Carla and Laura, thank you so much for joining and making the time to share. So in closing… One of my favorite authors is Cormac McCarthy. Carla knows that I like to read. She does too. And um, at age 90, he just released two novels, one called The Passenger and the other one called Stella Maris. And Stella Maris actually um, is about one of the characters from The Passenger who's got a psychiatric problem, and the whole novel deals with her psychiatric issues. It's, 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 it's a really interesting two-book set. But what I'm really going to close with is a poem. 
from one of my favorite poets and a short story writer called Raymond Carver. Now, the poem is called Late Fragment, and it always makes me think of fame, fortune, ambition, and in the end, what really matters. So I want you just to think about these few lines that I'm going to, to read. I'm, I'm not a, an actor, but I'll do my best to, to, to read them in a way that is um, in the spirit. And so it goes as follows. And did you get what you wanted from this life? Even so, I did. And what did you want? To call myself beloved, to feel myself beloved on the earth. So think about that when you think about what is important. This has been Beyond Madness in proud association with Adcock Ingram OTC, sponsors of Brave, inspiring communities one pharmacy at a time. Remember, there is no health without mental health. And until next time, take care. Today we're talking to Jackie Mayman as part of our focus on independent community pharmacies. Jackie is a pharmacist with over 35 years working experience in the health sector, specifically in the pharmaceutical industry. She is also a founding director of the Independent Community Pharmacy Association and is currently their CEO. Jackie, hi and welcome to Beyond Madness. Today we're going to be talking about the use of medication in the elderly. As one ages, the likelihood of requiring medication to manage medical conditions increases. It can be complicated and overwhelming for some, where there are multiple conditions and medications. Jackie, how might a pharmacist assist practically under those circumstances? Firstly, thank you very much for having me on Beyond uh, Madness. And absolutely, a pharmacist can assist there. So unfortunately, all of us, we are destined to age. And as we age, we come up with certain conditions. Now, um, these conditions often require multiple medications. Um, and it is just a, 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 an absolute fact of getting older. You're right. going to end up on some medicines at some stage. Now, how the pharmacist can assist, we are experts in medicine. So we can look at medication-related problems such as adverse drug reactions, drug interactions, medication non-adherence and the managing of side effects. And I think pharmacists play an absolutely critical role in helping the elderly population manage their medicines effectively and safely. And here are some practical ways in which a pharmacist can assist. Mm. So firstly, a medication review. A pharmacist can conduct a comprehensive medication review to evaluate the appropriateness, safety, and efficacy of each and every medicine that you're on. This review can identify potential drug interactions, duplicate therapies, very important, and unnecessary medications. You know, so often you might be on a medicine which is actually causing a problem that you're on another medicine to, and by taking that one away, you can can reduce it. Mm. Then medication adherence, another important one pharmacists can help with. I think we can help educate people the importance of taking medicine, how to take it, when to take it, and why you're taking it. And I think this is very important with things such as blister packing. Right. So, you know, some, some of us, when we get a bit older, we forget, did we take our tablets this morning? Exactly. So we can blister packs, we can do pill reminders, and simplified dosing regimens. We can do things like when you brush your teeth, remember to take this. When you have breakfast, take that. Yes. And then the last one I would say is polypharmacy management. Mm. So really your pharmacist can sit down there together with your um, doctors because often when we get older, we have a number of doctors. We've got one that's looking after the plumbing, one that's looking after the heart. Correct. Um, 
<laughs> yes. And so we can we can help manage those multiple medicines and minimize the risk of any adverse drug reactions. And of course, sorry, just to jump in there, also working with caregivers potentially. Absolutely. That's what I was going to say, collaborative right. care. So we can work with those healthcare providers and physicians, nurses, and your carers, you know, so that you are not, you can reduce your pill burden, take tablets when you necessarily take them. Right. I mean, we've seen instances where, Somebody was taking their diuretics or their water tablets at night no and good. wondering why they can't sleep. Yes. <laughs> right. So it's things like that, yes. you know, that we can help. So in summary, absolutely, your pharmacist yes. is an essential person in your right. healthcare team as you get older. Well, I think that's excellent uh, uh, practical advice, Jackie, and it's good to know that the pharmacist is available to assist and make sure that everything happens as it should. Once again, thank you so much for joining us. It's a pleasure. Thank you.